Welcome again to Covenant Presbyterian Church. We are in a series where we are looking at different passages from all over Scripture. Last week we were in the Old Testament, and now uh, this morning we're in the New Testament. We were looking at poetry uh, last week, and we're looking at narrative uh, prose uh, this week, such as the nature of topical sermons like this. Uh, we are going to, uh, next week, uh, hear God's Word from Dr. Dan Steer, who will be preaching while uh, Jake is uh, in uh, St. Louis, and I'll be uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, very grateful to have a week away from sermon prep, so Dr. Steer will be preaching. And then uh, after that, we will return to Mark's Gospel. Uh, that is, as you know, our normal practice here. We uh, slowly, bit by bit, make our way through a single book of the Bible. So we'll return uh, to Mark's Gospel in two weeks' time. Uh, this morning we are in uh, Acts, uh, Acts chapter 10, uh, looking at verses 34 through 43. This is uh, a section where Peter uh, preaches the Gospel to a house full of Gentiles. So I'm uh, preaching a sermon on a sermon, but you'll, you'll see uh, how this is done in a moment. Uh, little theologians, we're happy that you are here this morning. Uh, we don't want you to grow uh, bored. We don't want you to feel as though you're not a part of this sermon. Uh, what I'd like for you to do is work for, uh, work for me uh, artistically and draw a picture of a water gun fight. You've had a water gun fight, right? This, this could be a piece of artwork that your parents may not necessarily be proud of. So let's, let's uh, focus in a little bit. You know at a water gun fight, there's always one or two kids that don't shoot at others. What do they do? They drink the water out of their water pistol. You know those kids. How irritating is that? Well, maybe that's one of you. That's what I want you to draw a picture of. I want you to draw a picture of that kid who is at a water gun fight, but what they're doing is they're actually drinking uh, their own water, their own ammunition out of their own gun. And that's the picture I want. Our passage again is from Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 34. Uh, before I read the passage, uh, join me in prayer. Our Father, we are grateful that you speak to us, and not only that, that you speak to us uh, loudly, uh, very loudly. Indeed, we need that. We pray that you would forgive us for our uh, dull sense of hearing, but we do thank you for the Holy Spirit that uh, takes that word and uh, burrows it down uh, deep inside of us and then takes that word as we go into the Christian life uh, that we would apply that word. This you do by your Spirit, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, Acts uh, chapter 10, and uh, we're at verses uh, 30, 34 through 43. Acts 10, beginning at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right and is, is, is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, uh, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and of the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of our Lord. I want to begin by uh, noting uh, that uh, there is a famous preacher uh, that you will have never heard of. Such is the nature of sometimes uh, the ministry of preaching. This preacher was named Merrill Abbey, Methodist preacher, and he also was a, a professor of preaching uh, in the Chicago area in the 1960s. And he wrote a book uh, called Preaching to the Contemporary Mind, keep, in, uh, keep before you the fact that uh, Merrill Abbey is uh, trying to form the young preachers uh, before him. And he said to these uh, young men, I'm sure that they were uh, just men in the room, although he was uh, teaching at a liberal seminary, uh, he said to those men that you are about to go into the world and you're preaching to a body of hearers that live in the air that is full of voices. The people you're preaching to live in an air full of voices. He says to these young preachers in training that uh, people uh, that you will be preaching to, they are hearing voices from every direction. Each day there is some new sensational crisis in their ears. They're hearing it. We're, after all, in an age of communication, Merrill Abbey says, and they're hearing information all the time. This is 1963. And he continues uh, speaking to these young preachers, and he says, uh, at the same time that we live in an age of communication, uh, we also uh, live in uh, an age of forgetfulness. Uh, each day there is new sensational uh, information, but at the same time, that information is going to be replaced by information after it and information uh, after that. Uh, news becomes old very quick to such a degree that last week's news is quickly forgotten. It's an age of communication, but it's also an age of forgetfulness. Your people, he says to these young preachers, live in an air that is full of voices. And I know this sounds like I'm belaboring the point, but he says something else that should strike us. Merrill Abbey says that they're living in an age full of communication, but also full of forgetfulness. And if you live in an age like this long enough, you're actually going to become cynical and apathetic. He says to his students, it becomes for them an age of apathy, a public acclimated to crisis and exhausted by hysteria. And ultimately, they lose their sensitivity and they lose their will to respond. Every day there's new news, and every day there's a process of forgetting the old news. 
And on some level, I think all of us have noticed that during the pandemic. We're at this stage in pandemic living where uh, we're tired, perhaps, of the hysteria. It's become old news. We're looking for something more, and the mere mention of COVID, well, we dial it out. We become cynical. We're ready to move on. The apathy is literally the absence of feeling without emotion. Are we that cynical? Well, perhaps some of that is legitimate and some of that is uh, illegitimate. I just mentioned that back in 1963, this this is what Merrill Abbey was saying uh, to those uh, future preachers. And I sense that this is how many of us feel this morning. This morning, we uh, run the risk of being very apathetic indeed about what's happening around us, tired of the news. I don't want to hear any more of it. I brought us this morning to a passage in the life of Peter in which he arrives at a very particular moment in his life. And I think it's a particular moment in which uh, Peter could, in verses 34 and 35, Peter could respond with just apathy. Many, many reasons in the setting of the passage and in the passage itself uh, that would indicate that Peter really could respond with great uh, apathy. You know, we've been making our way through Mark's gospel, and we uh, stopped right at the point where uh, Jesus uh, has his last meal uh, with his disciples. And uh, Peter, during that last week, you remember uh, how gung-ho he was. I will never deny you, he says to Jesus. We, of course, know that he will deny Jesus three times. This passage here takes us to a few months beyond that moment of the Lord's table with his disciples. And what's happening to Peter is that Peter is slowly becoming a recognized leader in the church at Jerusalem, even though most of those in Jerusalem uh, who profess faith in Jesus Christ have, in this particular moment, been scattered uh, abroad in Judea and beyond. Uh, Stephen is martyred in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 7. Our passage is Acts chapter 10. Saul himself is ravishing uh, the church in Jerusalem. And Peter, he seems to be on tour. He's moving about uh, here and there. He's visiting Jewish Christians uh, along the Mediterranean coast. And while Peter is in Joppa, he gets a call from Caesarea, about 30 miles to the north. He's in Joppa, and he gets a call. And the call is not from a Jew, but from a Gentile. In fact, a notable Gentile, a Gentile with power and authority. And Peter, he goes to see the Gentile. And when he gets there, he's going to go into that man's house, and he's going to have to make a decision. And in our passage, uh, verses 34 and 35 are that very setting. And in verse 36, he makes a decision. And I'm drawing us to those two verses in particular, 34 and 35, because I want us to see the weightiness of the moment that Peter is living in in that, moment, in that particular moment. Peter has to make a decision. Will he be apathetic and just walk away? Will he uh, sense his own presuppositions about the people who are in that very house, in that very room, 
and know that he has already made a decision about them and just turn and walk out the door 30 miles to the south back to Joppa where he was surrounded by Jews. He has to make a decision in these two verses. Will he be apathetic? Will he just not care and walk away? The theme uh, that I'm aiming at is that the danger of apathy is actually always near in the Christian life. Apathy is always near in our lives. But the gospel confronts that inner apathy and reminds us that we're a part of something larger, the work of the gospel. We're going to spend quite a bit of time here in verses 34 uh, through uh, 35, so get ready for that, uh, what Peter believed uh, just moments ago, all right? What Peter believed just moments ago, that's really uh, the force of these two verses. And then we're going to move from those verses, uh, and we're going to see what Peter believes now. What Peter believed just moments ago, and what Peter believes now. You see in verse 34 there, don't you, that Peter opened his mouth and said something. I want you to understand that that's an odd expression, he opened his mouth. Why not just say, Luke is the writer of this uh, letter, why not just say, Peter preached, Peter said something. But he opened his mouth. Strange expression, don't you think? Just let us assume that he'd open his mouth. One commentator says that this is how Luke introduces a weighty utterance. You hear that? A weighty utterance. Peter's about to say something that's weighty. Something big's about to be spoken. And if there were a director, uh, the director would zoom in on the face of Peter maybe even zoom in on his quivering lower lip. Sweat drops from his nose. This is a big moment, a weighty utterance. And it's a weighty utterance, not really about the audience. I'll tell you about his audience. But the weighty utterance is really about Peter himself. He's going to say something about himself. Truly, I understand. Truly, I understand. Literally, what that expression is saying is, truly, I'm coming to realize something. Just think about that. He is saying this in public. He's really talking to himself publicly. Maybe some of you here will do this. Everyone here knows what the superhero monologue is, right? You're really speaking to yourself. Not to me, but here I am. And there's deep reverberations of the soul of Peter that are slipping uh, out of his lips as he is expressing publicly something that he's just realizing himself. I'm coming to realize something here. Well, let's uh, research that a little bit. Two days ago, Peter was staying in uh, Joppa at the home of a Jewish Christian, a man by the name of Simon. He'd been there apparently for uh, many days. We don't know how many, but many days. And the reason he came to Joppa in the first place uh, was to minister to a Jewish family that had uh, lost a dear saint, a, a woman by the name of Tabitha. Uh, Peter, uh, in Joppa, he prayed over her dead body, and God raised her from the dead. And the city of Joppa was then electric with excitement, and he stayed many days. And while in Joppa, a city filled with uh, intense energy at the raising of a dead person, 
three men come to the house where Peter is staying, and they ask specifically for Peter. It's a Roman soldier and two servants of a large household. A Roman soldier and two servants of a large household. And they want Peter to return with them to Caesarea, a two-day walk to the north. And this very request, not to mention their appearance at the door, well, it would have put everyone on edge. Now, uh, Peter, he agrees to go with them because of a dream in which an angel told him that this very thing would happen, that three men would come, and the angel says to Peter, accompany them without hesitation. So Peter goes with them, but everyone in Simon the Tanner's house would be on edge. The three men, because they arrive late in the afternoon, they ultimately end up staying the night in Simon's house. That would have put them further on edge. And they're in the city that is excited about a ministry of a Jew to a Jew. It would have put the entire city on edge. Roman soldiers, by the way, capture Jesus. Roman soldiers, by the way, tortured Jesus. Uh, Roman soldiers, by the way, killed Jesus. Uh, Roman soldiers, by the way, guarded the tomb of Jesus. And that's just the beginning. These men who have come are Gentiles. They're outsiders. Uh, Peter would already be uh, predisposed against them regardless of the fact that they are attached to Roman rule and authority. The lessons of loving a Samaritan are already a little bit underdone in the heart of Peter. Would you go with these three men on a two-day journey so near after the crucifixion of Jesus? I'm sharing the details in this way, pointedly, because I want you to understand the struggle that Peter has right now is a very real struggle. You and I know that Peter uh, had a dream on the roof of Simon's house, house about the lowering of a sheet of animals clean and animals unclean. And you and I know about this dream. And you and I know that God told him to eat from both the clean and the unclean animals. And you and I know that uh, Peter said, no way am I going to do that. He knew what was unclean and he told God so. But God corrects Peter in this dream and says, What I have made clean, do not call common, that is unclean. And three times, three times, God had to give Peter permission to eat what is unclean, even though Peter thought it was, uh, thought it was unclean and to be avoided. Some of you are like me and you like P.G. Woodhouse. P.G. Woodhouse tells the stories of uh, Jeeves and Wooster. Uh, you know, of course, that Jeeves is the, uh, the intelligent butler to Bertie Wooster, uh, who is the ignorant aristocrat. And Bertie Wooster always has a hard time understanding what Jeeves is going on about. And every now and again, uh, Bertie Wooster will come really close to understanding what his uh, highly intelligent uh, butler is uh, saying to him. Uh, but he almost always misses the point. And uh, there is a section where uh, he confesses, I was trying to uh, grab it as it came off the bat. He's thinking about uh, his butler speaking to him, and he says, I was trying to grab it as it came off the bat, 
but I missed it by several yards. I like that picture. He's trying to understand Jeeves, and he's not quite there. And Peter, he's trying to understand uh, what God is saying. He's trying to catch the ball right off the bat. He's missing it by yard after yard after yard after yard. And it's important that we understand that about Peter, even though he's had uh, this uh, great vision, because Peter, he now has to make a really difficult decision. Am I going to follow these Roman Gentiles or am I going to stay? Am I going to disobey God and stay in a town full of happy Jewish Christians? Or am I going to obey God and travel two days to a Gentile city to visit the house of a Jesus-killing Gentile? He doesn't quite understand the vision. He didn't catch the ball off the bat. And yet the decision is upon him. Will he go even though every fiber of his being says, I should not? You know, there's another Jew that had a difficult situation like this, and uh, Luke doesn't mention it, but I think he wants us to see it. You ever heard of Jonah? Jonah ran away from God, from this same city. And we ought to wonder if Peter is going to run away from God too. It's the very same city. Thankfully, Peter, he actually doesn't run away. I've never had this happen before. I wonder if I need to jump forward to the punchline. A <laughs> little theologians everywhere are celebrating. <clears throat> we know that Peter, he goes, doesn't he? And when Peter goes, Peter takes advantage of an opportunity to do something that's really significant. And you think you know the answer. But I'm not sure that you do. The significant moment of what Peter does when he finally goes two days to the north and is in the home of a Roman soldier and has an audience of people that is enormous. You think that Peter preaches the gospel to them. You're close to right. He preaches the gospel to them. But what I don't want us to miss in an age in which we are all deeply apathetic and cynical is I don't want us to miss the fact that Peter is not just preaching the gospel to them. He's preaching the gospel to himself. That's the momentous time of verses 34 and 36. You remember how the Lord's Prayer goes, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a lovely prayer, isn't it? You've got to make it often. But I want us to understand that when we make that prayer, we're making that prayer because we are exactly the kind of people, as Christians, who need to make that prayer. Do you hear what this prayer requires that we admit? I cannot pray this prayer, and you cannot pray this prayer, without admitting that left to our own devices, I'm going to hallow my name. I am going to seek my will, and I am going to seek my kingdom. That's what we're admitting when we make that prayer. It just rolls off of our lips so naturally, doesn't it? 
Think about what Jesus has told his disciples to admit. And Peter has this remarkable opportunity. Derek Thomas says that it's so very true that we don't recognize monumental moments until well beyond them. This is a monumental moment. I'm not sure that Peter recognizes it. But Peter has an opportunity in verses 34 and 35 to contemplate the fact that he is always trying to make, uh, make a name for himself. He is always trying to establish his kingdom and his will. And he gets it. And in this house, it's time to be done with that. And when he preaches the gospel, he's preaching the gospel to himself. He doesn't ponder his way out of this situation. In two verses, he understands who he once was and he understands who he needs to save him. Who am I now? That's what Peter realizes in those two verses. And so he preaches the gospel uh, to himself, doesn't he? Uh, Peter, he is preaching a gospel that uh, he knows very, very well. In fact, it comes very naturally uh, to him. But what he had never done is he hadn't taken that gospel and really applied it to all of his heart's desires. He had been preaching a message this way, but he hadn't really applied it to his own name, to his own will, to his own kingdom seeking. <laughs> this is really important. The drink is really important. This is really important. Peter had a quiver of arrows, and he's shooting the arrows all over the place. And now he's learning to take one of those arrows and eat it. Now's the time. Eat the arrow yourself. Our little theologians drink the water right out of the gun. This is a message that you preach, but this is a message that you need. And this message reorders all of Peter's priorities. And it happens in these two verses. Does he realize it or not? There's two things that are so important here. The first seems pretty obvious. The lost need the gospel. The Gentiles in the room, they need to hear the gospel. Peter could go on for several verses testifying to what he understands about himself. What Peter is learning about himself is huge, but he only gives it two verses. He interrupts what he's realizing himself, and he's preaching the gospel because the lost need to hear the gospel. But what I want us to hear this morning loud and clear is that you may profess faith in Jesus Christ, and you may have all kinds of fruit from that walk with Jesus. But you are never free from applying the gospel to yourself. And that's true for me as well. The first thing we hear is that, Peter, is that the lost need the gospel. They will never be saved without the gospel. But the found need the gospel too. The lost are jarred from their neat and tidy world that they have created for themselves. And the lost are, are jarred, uh, jarred to such a degree that by the power of the Spirit, they become believers. But you and I need the gospel. And we're a sizable church. We're a leading kind of church. 
presbytery took place here. The leaders of this church are plugged in everywhere in the Tennessee Valley Presbytery. We're a notable church. We're a church, I mean, look at the place. It looks like we've got all kinds of stuff figured out. I mean, I'm wearing a Genevan robe. We're that kind of church. But would we never be the kind of church that thinks that we no longer need to apply the gospel to ourselves? And we, would we certainly not be the kind of church that is not continually to learn, continuing to learn about ourselves as we apply that gospel? The gospel's for the lost and the gospel's for the found. Would that be our leadership? Would that be what we are known for? When the age becomes cynical and apathetic, when everything is being written off and we know what's best, would we say everything that happens happens by the ordained will of the God who has saved me in Jesus Christ? Everything that happens has happened according to his will. Everything is important. Everything has gospel significance. There's no room for cynicism. I'm wrapped up in this enormous cosmic story that is broader than the story of the history of the pandemic in America and Western Europe. I'm wrapped up into a story by the power of the gospel that is larger than myself. And that means all of Peter's presuppositions fall away and they're replaced by gospel presuppositions. Peter travels two days to enter the home of a Jesus-killing Roman centurion. All of his presuppositions have been turned on their head. All of a sudden, the things that he wrote off are suddenly important. We need to understand that. The gospel tells us what to say to the world. The gospel tells us what to say to ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, uh, would you uh, forgive me for at uh, this uh, pulpit just being uh, angry at a cough. Uh, thank you for your word. Uh, your Holy Spirit is always a teacher of your word. Uh, the lips of the minister are supposed to be uh, weak and feeble and lame and limping. It's the way you work. Father, would you apply this word to us? And would you continue to teach us about who we are through your good gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.